Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Behind the Knife listeners, this is Patrick Georgeoff, and I wanted to let you know that we are giving away free Behind the Knife AppSite review books. To be entered into our drawing, all you need to do is leave Behind the Knife a review on Apple Podcasts and include your Twitter or Instagram handle, or email us at btkpodcast at gmail.com to let us know that you showed BTK some love. Simply scroll down to the ratings and review section on the Apple Podcasts app to tell the world how much you appreciate Behind the Knife. Submit before September 1st for a chance to win one of five free AppSite review books. And don't forget, BTK is looking for enthusiastic surgery residents to join our team. More information can be found by clicking on the fellowship application link in the show notes. Remember, applications are due August 22nd, so get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Surgical Palliative Care edition of Behind the Knife. I can't tell you how excited I am to say that. My name is Red Hoffman, and I am an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina and one of about 90 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I am the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast and the co-founder of the recently launched Surgical Palliative Care Society. My co-hosts and I are so excited that the folks at Behind the Knife recognize the importance of integrating palliative medicine into surgical education, and we are so grateful to be here. We believe that you do not have to be board certified in hospice and palliative medicine in order to deliver high quality palliative care to your surgical patients and their families. To that end, over the next two years, we will introduce you to the most high yield palliative care topics and we'll discuss the literature that supports the integration of palliative medicine into the care of surgical patients. So to start, I'd like to introduce you to my co-hosts, Dr. Fabian Johnston and Dr. Amanda Stasny. Fabian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Well, first, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of this uh, podcast and inviting me. Uh, first, I am a surgical oncologist who uh, is the perfect person to have on because I am not boarded in palliative care. But I, too, believe that this is something important that we all as surgeons can do. Um, I do have a little bit of ace in the hole in that despite not being boarded in palliative care, I'm a funded palliative care researcher. I uh, practice surgical oncology at Johns Hopkins, where I'm the chief of the division of surgical oncology. Thanks, Fabian. I'm so glad you're here. And Amanda, I know that's a tough act to follow, but please (laughs) introduce yourself as well. Uh, My name is Amanda Stastny, and I'd also just like to say thanks to you, Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Johnson, and Behind the Knife. Um, I'm a second-year general surgery resident at Mayhack in Asheville, North Carolina. Grew up in South Carolina and have always kind of been intrigued by palliative care and how meaningful it can be for families. And I'm just really excited to be here working with and learning with such knowledgeable mentors. Haven't decided exactly what I like to specialize in, but I do know that I want to be confident in incorporating palliative care into my practice as a surgeon. And I'm just really excited to be here. Well, thanks for being here, Amanda. You definitely seem to have a gift, so I'm happy you're part of the show. So Dr. Zara Cooper, an acute care surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, 
the Kessler Director of the Center for Surgery and Public Health, an Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School, and an all-round incredible woman, is also part of our team and will be joining us for the next episode. So today I thought we'd start off focusing on three main palliative care skills, how to effectively run a family meeting, how to discuss code status, and how to discuss goals of care. All of these skills are what I would consider primary palliative care skills, which are the skills that any surgeon should be able to perform. So we'll start off with a case in the ICU, since that is my happy place, and because many of these discussions do occur in that environment. So we have a 78-year-old female with a past medical history of COPD on two liters home oxygen and chronic low back pain, and a past surgical history of a mechanical valve who presented to the emergency department as a code trauma status post-MVC. Her husband, unfortunately, died on the scene. On presentation, she was a GCS of 14, complaining mostly of chest pain and right leg pain. She was pan-scanned, and the workup revealed a small subdural, bilateral rib fractures, eight on the right and six on the left, a grade two liver, a grade three spleen, and a right femur fracture. A review of her chart revealed that she was on Coumadin and she was given Kcentra. She was admitted to the ICU and over the next several hours developed worsening hypoxemia and was therefore intubated. She was taken to the OR the next morning for an ORIF, the right femur. Her hemoglobin slowly drifted during the next two days, but then stabilized. So on hospital day three, she was started on a heparin drip secondary to her mechanical valve. 24 hours after starting, she was noted to have blood-tinged output from the NG, so the drip was discontinued and a PPI was started. And over the next several days, she failed her spontaneous breathing trial every day. On hospital day six, she was restarted on the heparin drip, but once again bled, so it was stopped. On hospital day seven, she was diagnosed with a ventilator-associated pneumonia and started on antibiotics. Over the last two days, her urine output has continued to decline and her creatinine has continued to rise. So we're picking her up in the ICE in the trauma ICU on hospital day 10, and we get to meet two of her three children at the bedside. The sign out we received was that up until now, all of her children wanted to continue with aggressive measures. They're obviously distraught over the recent death of their dad and ask about the next steps for their mom. And we recommend a family meeting the next morning. So Fabian, to get us started, can you talk to us a little bit about how best to plan for the family meeting? Thanks so much. Um, first, we have to ask why a surgical oncologist is part taking part as trauma. But after we finish that part, <laughs> <laughs> we then really uh, need to think about different components. And so Jeff Dunn has put in place and, and established a really nice uh, uh, algorithm uh, to help us think about this. And it, it's a corollary to surgical procedures. So it's prepare, do, and close. And so we'll start with the repair part. It begins with first deciding that this needs to happen. And so sometimes family meetings are called, as in this instance, by the family and they're the request for us to meet. Uh, often it requires you as a, as a clinician to recognize that there is issues at play that need to be addressed. And they can run the gamut, but it's important to first to say, okay, now we're going to, we need to meet. Um, and then the second part of that is figuring out who are those people that need to be a part of the meeting. And so we know that there are three children 
uh, at least in this instance, and there may be more, um, you know, who else is important? Sometimes, you know, there is another family member that is a spokesperson. Um, sometimes they may be in the healthcare field or they are just great advocates for uh, their family members and may not be uh, the initial or family friends may not be initial blood relatives. And then you uh, move down the line and say, where, what about within the medical tier? And so patients in the ICU, you may have a care doc, but the trauma doc may be actively taking care of the patient. You also have the nurses. And I also like to include other folks that may be relevant to their care. So, for example, you may think that, um, you know, a chaplain may be beneficial to have. You may think a social worker may be beneficial to have. And I think it's important, uh, as we have one of the residents on the line, to have our trainees be a part of these conversations to watch uh, how we do these things. And I will say, having been included in them, I've learned as much what to do as what not to do from these meetings as a trainee. Thanks, Fabian. So I think some really important points there. One, especially because this patient is intubated and can't speak for herself, really taking the time to figure out who in a legal sense is speaking for her, and then also being inclusive and saying, well, we really want to invite anyone that the family thinks is necessary. But I do think it's important to take that step and figure out who is really her legal voice, because she cannot currently speak for herself and doesn't have the capacity to make complex medical decisions. So it turns out that this patient, she is actually part of the one third of Americans that actually has some sort of advanced directive. So her children brought us both a living will and a healthcare power of attorney. Her healthcare power of attorney was actually her husband who died on the scene. So Amanda, because her healthcare power of attorney is now dead, who is going to speak for her? So that's a great question. And it actually varies by state. The hierarchy of surrogate decision makers in North Carolina, for example, if they do not have a healthcare power of attorney or a court-appointed guardian, next on the list would be their spouse, which is not going to be applicable here since he died at the scene. After that, it's the majority of the patient's adult children and parents if they're still alive. Um, so in this case, it would be the majority of the patient's adult children are going to have to come to terms with what they'd like to do going forward. Yeah, and actually, it's really interesting. The American Bar Association has a great chart that I'll put in the show notes that actually lists every single state and um, the list of surrogate decision makers. And it is pretty incredible how much it varies state by state. So that's something to definitely be aware of in your own state. So Fabian, getting back to the family meeting, is there anything else you want to say about actually planning for it? One kind of what are, what's the goal of this meeting, right? What are we trying to understand? Where are we trying to be uh, at the end of this meeting? And uh, number two is, again, making sure you really understand the full scope of their medical care. And I really do think it's important to the best of your ability to understand a little bit of where the folks may be coming from socially and, and Sometimes we understand that or know what it is going in, and sometimes we don't. And again, that requires talking with the other team members who may be living it more. Certainly, often folks are around and you can see some of the dynamics. And so understanding both the medical side, but then also the social side that uh, may be at play. Definitely. Thank you. So besides her healthcare power of attorney form, our patient does have a living will. 
And like most living wills, this one states that if she has an incurable condition that will lead to death in a short period of time, if she is unconscious and likely not to regain consciousness, or if she has advanced dementia, then she would like the team to withhold or withdraw any life-prolonging measures. But I think a lot of folks will realize, this often happens in the ICU, that while this patient is critically ill and is in multi-system organ failure, the statements in her living will don't really address her current situation. And that's something that we need to discuss further during the family meeting. Amanda, anything else you would do to prepare for the meeting? Can I ask a quick question? Of course. I think it's awesome for learners to be here. I've seen some good experiences and some bad experiences, um, a lot of things to learn from. But, you know, these can kind of be emotionally charged situations sometimes, especially in an acute setting, can be complex social dynamics. Do you need to actually physically see this power of attorney form before you like go forward? That's a great question. If the family is saying that one exists, then yes, I do want to see it if it's going to be used to be making medical decisions. I will also say that I am all about the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law (laughs) at the end of the day, because I want the family to walk away if they make any decisions. I want them to feel complete. But if they're saying that a living will exists and they want to say withdraw care because of that living will, then we need to see it. Okay. And same for the power of attorney. Oh, yes. Going forward with the family meeting, um, we should talk to all the consultants that are involved in this patient's care during her stay. Right. So for this patient, the orthopedic trauma team says they're finished with her and she'll need PT and likely discharge to an acute rehab. The renal team, who we consulted this morning, says that they'd suggest starting Lasix and that if the patient doesn't respond in the next two or three days, that we should consider CRRT. Anything else, Amanda? So it's very important to establish goals for the meeting. Um, For this patient specifically, things that we should probably talk about are things like her code status, given her age, her injuries, her pre-existing comorbidities. We should also talk about discussing her goals of care aside from just the code status discussion, um, especially in light of the fact that um, the patient hasn't been able to be extubated. She may require a tracheostomy. Exactly. So... Then really the last thing in the prepare portion of the family meeting is I think it's important to take a few extra minutes to set up the room. So making sure you have enough chairs for everyone who's coming, making sure you have something simple like tissues. And then if more than one person's going to join the meeting, so as Fabian said, if you've asked a licensed clinical social worker or a chaplain or a resident or one of the consultants to be involved to do what's called the pre-meeting huddle to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because it's really important for all of the team to have a unified message that you're delivering to the family. And so we'll move now into the do part of the family meeting. So it's best to start with an introduction. Patients and families see so many different team members during a hospitalization that I think it's best not to assume that everyone knows who you are. And also, when I'm working in the ICU and just coming onto the service, I like to let the family know that I've discussed the hospital course with my previous partner and with the nurse and that I really am up to speed on what's going on. And then I ask everyone in the room to introduce themselves as well. Fabian? Yeah, you know, it's really important as after we have these introductions and with with those introductions, it's also 
important to say what your role is in the patient's care. And so people really understand, you know, who uh, is caring for their loved ones. And um, with this, we usually uh, try and avoid what Ann Moldenthal has kind of called a data dump, and which is, you know, just going through and regurgitating everything uh, right off the bat. It's important to um, establish what people understand about folks' care. And so there is a communication skill called ask, tell, ask, which gives a time for patients and their families to talk. And it really establishes a structure that enables us not to ramble on. And so for our patient, I would start by asking three kids to tell me and the team, what do they really understand about their mom's hospitalization up to this point? Yeah, I think that's such a great place to start because it really allows the family to set the stage for what will be discussed at the meeting. I mean, it's great to have our own goals, but the emphasis should really be on patient and family-centered care. And along with that ask, tell, ask, I, I love this. I was just reading through a bunch of studies, some dating back to the 90s, and then they were done again in the early aughts that looked at how quickly doctors interrupt their patients. And so the average was between 11 and 23 seconds um, we go before interrupting. And for me, who really likes to talk, it really takes a concentrated effort to keep my mouth shut, (laughs) to be honest. So for this patient, her two sons and her daughter all participate in the discussion, though they seem to have variable degrees of understanding, which often happens. None of them seem to know the full extent of her injuries. And while they all know she has pneumonia, they feel very confused and frustrated that she is still intubated, particularly because she seems uncomfortable to them when she is awake. And then none of them know that she is in acute renal failure and that the renal team was consulted this morning. What next, Amanda? So I really like when the next step kind of in this discussion is to talk about the actual patient. It's easy to kind of lose sight of who the main participant in this conversation is, even though they might not physically be participating. Um, You can ask the family to tell a little bit more about the patient, their mom, who she is, what she liked to do, what was most important to her, and kind of what her typical day looked like over the past few months and years and just anything that they think is important for the group to know. Yeah. So her kids share that their parents were actually married for 60 years. And while their father was still very active, their mother had become increasingly homebound over the past several months. She was frequently short of breath and also had trouble ambulating because of her low back pain. And she used to go to church a lot, but she hadn't been in the last year. So once the family tells us about that, I'll then review the hospitalization so far. And for me, I have found it really useful to review the patient from head to toe, talking about the injuries and the current issues in every system. And, you know, basically from the medical perspective, this patient has neurologic, respiratory, cardiac, hematologic, GI, renal, and musculoskeletal issues. Anything to add, Fabian? Yeah. So, you know, taking off of that, one thing I do like to do before I do my review is kind of simply reflect what the family has said back to me. And so, you know, they say, you know, it sounds like she was very active um, and things have, you know, declined uh, recently. The other thing to say about this is we are preparing to go through this. One of the things that we as physicians are really bad at is 
Um, one, as you said, being a little silent, uh, so pausing, right, frequently uh, as we go through each component, giving folks a little time to process it and respond, trying to speak simply, speaking slowly. I have this problem myself as a New Yorker. Sometimes it just <laughs> kind of comes out and, uh, and, and, and I struggle with it. And, and being thoughtful and observing, not just family, but also you can sometimes see your colleagues key in on watching the other folks' reaction, right? It is a very active process um, to be engaged in a family meeting. And so those are some other uh, tips that I would uh, include. Thanks, Fabian. So using the ask, tell, ask skill, I will then once again ask the family if they have any questions. And then once those are answered, I will probably shift the focus to the goals of care. So I think one thing that's so important about goals of care is that they should always be discussed in the context of diagnosis and prognosis. So for this patient, I might say to the family, given the fact that several of your mom's systems are currently not working, I am concerned that she may not recover and that if she recovers, she will have a very prolonged course moving forward. And so what's interesting, and this happens a lot, is that in this situation, even though I had just listed all of their mom's current medical problems, the family, especially her son, seemed very surprised to hear this news that she may actually not survive this hospitalization. Any other thoughts, Fabian? Yeah, you know, with this, it's, um, as um, Amanda was saying, it can you can have multiple different reactions. I mean, this situation... They're, they're a little shocked by this um, and surprised. Some folks can, you know, may, they may have already had a, a thought, but now it's starkly put. And so some people may be very understanding and they put it in frame and they've been waiting for you to tell them. Some uh, may be really sad um, uh, and the emotion of that um, may come, come in. They may be crying. There may be anger that may occur and it may not necessarily be anger at you. Uh, as the uh, provider or the team, but just at the situation. And so, but we want to give people the space to experience that. And so, as you were saying earlier, Red, you know, we don't necessarily give people that space. And so often when we give bad news, we want to fill the space and just say something because it's yep. uncomfortable. Giving that silent, giving space, people the space to uh, feel and emote is important. And it allows you to then figure out how to ne- respond next. And I'm, I have been amazed what will bubble up in that silence. If you can hold your tongue long enough, that family will say something eventually. And what they say is often very telling. So another question that I like to ask now is I'll ask the family, what are you hoping for at this point? And so when I ask this family that question, the daughter says that she really just wants her mom to be peaceful and comfortable but her sons say that they are hoping for a full recovery. And I really like to use this question to judge how closely the family's hopes are aligned with what I think is the likely outcome. So Amanda, it seems like in some ways that the daughter is able to grasp how ill her mother is while the two sons are focused on a full recovery. How can you respond to this? At this point, have you told them like what you think is the likely outcome? Well, I did say that I was very concerned she wouldn't recover and Uh that if she is going to recover, she would have a very prolonged course. I think it's important to acknowledge what the sons are hoping for. You could say something like, 
I also hope that your mom is able to make a complete recovery, but my concern is that she may not be able to. Right. And so this way we're able to maintain hope. We never want to take that away from patients or families, but I do feel like it's also our obligation to be honest and to let them know what we're concerned about. At this point, as the family meeting's progressing, I do like to introduce the goals that we came in with. Sometimes we get to them and sometimes we don't. But I let the family know that I think it's really important that we discuss both code status and the likely need for a tracheostomy. And of course, I'd explain this in very simple terms. So one way to transition to this conversation is to say, given how sick your mom is right now, there are a few things that I think we need to discuss. And I've actually found that discussing code status can be sometimes more emotional than anything else for people. And part of that, I think, is CPR is something that people may feel like they understand because they see it on TV a lot. So I decide to kind of start talking about the tracheostomy. So Amanda, do you have any tips for us? Yeah. So like Dr. Johnson said, it's always important to use plain and simple language. For this family, you could kind of set the stage for reviewing by reviewing that you know, mom has a history of COBD and she uses oxygen at home. Um, she's got 14 broken ribs. She's being treated for pneumonia. Um, she hasn't been able to pass the test that would kind of graduate her from the ventilator and the breathing tube. And so at this point, we have to start thinking about what to do next. And that would be replacing the tube that goes in her mouth right now to with a tube in her neck. And you can kind of throw in there that her COPD and her rib fractures and her pneumonia would lead me to believe that she's going to be hooked up to this breathing machine for a few more weeks. Yeah. And so there's a lot of emotion in the room as you explain this. Her daughter says that she doesn't think mom would want the tracheostomy. And her sons want to know, well, if she doesn't get the tracheostomy, what's going to happen? And so again, I think using very simple language and because we owe it to the family to be honest, I would tell them, well, if we don't do the tracheostomy, at some point we'll remove that tube in her mouth and that she's likely going to die within minutes to hours. And not surprisingly, this leads to a lot more crying and her sons say that they're not ready to give up on their mom. So any thoughts about what we can do next, Fabian? Often um, you're now at this junction with family members or individuals about what to do and while we are very well versed at uh, often prognosticating, or at least uh, knowing um, what the pathway may be, folks aren't ready. And so the idea of coming into a meeting and saying, well, this is my agenda and this is what I plan to do, we have to kind of follow it and meet people where they are. And so one of the things that is, is helpful in that is the idea of a, a time-limited trial. And so what this is is basically an agreement between clinicians and family, pay, family members to, to utilize certain therapies to see if a patient improves or deteriorates over time. And um, if they improve, um, then we would continue with this uh, therapy. If they, if they you know, worsen, then we would reevaluate. And so this often gives people the time to see for themselves um, what is um, trajectory of their loved one's disease. And it, uh, in my opinion, it often alleviates some of the stress uh, and anxiety that may come with the interactions between 
uh, patients and their families because they see for themselves uh, where things are. And so, you know, when should we utilize this? And I think, you know, when the outcome or benefit of an intervention is not clear and, you know, for either yourself or the patients, it's, more information is needed to help with this complex decision-making uh, that may occur. And so, um, you know, sometimes that time limit trial is certainly beneficial for folks to see what is going to uh, occur and what how much medical care is needed to help their loved one. And then, you know, you talk about what the intervention will be and what are going to be the markers for improvement and decline. And then, you know, lastly, um, you know, what is going to be the time frame for uh, evaluating this? You may say, hey, in 24 to 48 hours, we'll have a better sense of where this is uh, and we'll reconvene. So we have another plan to reconvene, um, whether it be a large time meeting or a discussion, a shorter discussion with folks, uh, and then making sure we document this, these discussions of time-limited um, um, therapies. Excellent. So at this point, we also wanted to revisit the patient's code status. So the family had initially said they wanted the ICU team to quote unquote, do everything. And then when asked again on hospital day six, they reiterated that feeling. Now, given the hospital course and what's happened in the last 10 days, I think it's reasonable to approach the family again. So personally, I'd speak very plainly to the family and tell them what I think that basically, given how sick your mom is, that I think it's important for us to talk about what the team should do if her heart stops. And I also really like to offer the family a few facts about CPR, especially when the family looks uncertain about what to do next. So Amanda, anything you can share with us about CPR? So as a resident, this is one of the palliative topics that I guess I actually get to do a fair amount of. So usually like to explain that CPR works best when your heart is the first thing to fail and not when kind of all these other organ systems are stacking up and causing the heart to stop. And that kind of in this case, it's more of an indicator of just how sick that she would be if her heart were to stop. And then, you know, given the fact that she has this advanced age, history of major trauma, her kidneys aren't working, she has pneumonia, she has these baseline comorbidities, um, the likelihood of her surviving is way less than what's actually recorded for successful in hospital CPR survival, which is about 18%. When I'm talking about CPR to family and changing the code status to do not resuscitate, I always explain to them that it really just puts a very reasonable limit on the end of things. And it doesn't change anything else that I or the team will do for their mom. And so the family does decide to change their mom's code status to DNR. And so at this point, the meeting's kind of wrapping up. I ask if they have any other questions and they don't. And we decide to meet again in 72 hours. We're going to give her a full three days of that time-limited trial. And then um, if she hasn't made any forward progress, or even if she has, we'll discuss whether they want to go ahead with the tracheostomy. So Fabian, now that the meeting is over, what's next? So, you know, once we wrap up, it's important to leave people with a, a plan. And so, you know, we, we do the debrief of what the, um, with the family of what, uh, and a nice overall review of what things are going to look like. Sometimes, again, if you're in a room, sometimes it's really nice if someone is writing it down 
not me, someone with very good handwriting, um, <laughs> right? Making a follow-up, uh, playing with the family, as we said. Um, and then once we leave the room, I like to debrief with all the folks outside. One things that I like to ask is, one, how did you think that went? Um, and, you know, to not uh, ignore the gorilla in the room, because sometimes it can be very emotional for team members. Um, and then, you know, if the nurse and or any other important people are not there, really giving them a nice debrief about what happened, updating the code status for the entirety of the team, making sure it's properly documented in the computer, the code status, if there is a change or not, and writing a nice summative note to um, so that anyone can go in and discuss it again. Because sometimes, you know, the worst thing that can happen is, let's say, you know, this instance we have... Um, you know, consulting physicians, and they are not aware of discussions that may have, have occurred that may change uh, their decision making. And so they go in and, and, and in some instance, you may say, you know, uh, op open up a wound that may be closing or make people anxious or angry because they say we're not we're not communicating. Right. And in large health systems, that's uh, or actually in medicine in general, that's pretty easy to occur. And so making sure everyone is uh, updated is important. Um, so I think another kind of important thing that um, surgeons can do is that they can charge for their time. If the discussion occurs in the ICU, you can add it to your ICU billing. If it occurs on a floor patient, um, there are some advanced care planning codes, uh, depending on how long conversation lasts. Um, these can be used daily and can be used multiple times during the same hospitalization. So it kind of, you know, encourages these repeat meetings and continuity. You just need to make sure that you document who was present and what was discussed, um, but you don't have to fill out any specific forms. Yeah, and I know for the residents, you may not be really tuned into that right now, but trust me, because these discussions take time, at some point you do want to be compensated for your time, so there is a way for that to get done. So Thank you all so much for joining me for this today. Um, looking forward to discussing more palliative care over the next two years with you guys. I want to leave our listeners with a few thoughts. One, again, we want to reiterate that you do not need to be board certified in hospice and palliative medicine to begin to master any of these skills. And as Fabian said in the beginning, the best way to learn this is to watch others who have these skills. So if you're consulting palliative care, go to the family meeting. If you have an attending that's more skilled in surgical palliative care, try to hang out with them a little bit and see what they do, see what works and what doesn't work. Two, again, when you're planning for a family meeting, remember to treat it like a procedure and respect it as such, just as you were prepared for a big case in the operating room. Three, as far as code status, know your stats, but also know that the best way to fail at this conversation is to have an agenda. So walking into the room to quote unquote, get the DNR is a setup for failure. So instead, we're all about being patient centered and family centered, listening to what their goals are, and then seeing if CPR is going to help the patient or the family achieve those goals. Four, when you're having a discussion about goals of care, always try to have it in relationship to the patient's diagnosis and prognosis. And lastly, this is something that Gretchen Schwarzy talks about a lot in best case, worst case. It is okay, and I'd say even expected, 
that we offer a recommendation to the family, particularly if we are asked. And that recommendation should be based on diagnosis, prognosis, and what we have learned about the patient's values. We'll be back in a few months with the Surgical Palliative Care Journal Club. Until then, please feel free to reach out to any of us if you have questions. So Amanda and Fabian, thank you so much. Thanks so much. This was so much fun. Thank you, Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day.